deal. President Trump fails to come to an agreement with Kim Jong-un. Sometimes you have to walk. And faces backlash for siding with Kim over the death of an American. I'm in such a horrible position. Is this the art of the deal? National Security Advisor John Bolton responds next. Plus, taking a stand, the president's former fixer flips. He is a racist, con man, cheat. And President Trump lashes out at the Russia probe. They're trying to take you out with bullshit, okay? The vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Mark Warner, weighs in next. And he's running again. Democrats' 2016 runner-up still wants the job. Our fight for a political revolution. And says he'll pass on any advice from Hillary Clinton. Can Democrats avoid making the same mistakes this election cycle? We can't go back and relitigate 2016. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is recovering after a brutal week. President Trump spent Saturday unwinding in his own unique way, delivering the longest speech of his presidency, two hours and two minutes, in front of an adoring crowd at the Conservative Political Action Conference, just days after the extraordinary public testimony by his former fixer, Michael Cohen. The president attacked the ongoing investigations of him, saying this. So they don't have anything with Russia. There's no collusion. So now they go and morph into, let's inspect every deal he's ever done. They're trying to take you out with bullshit, okay? With bullshit. It's actually difficult to think of a topic the president didn't mention in his speech. He bashed his former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, attacked the Green New Deal, complained about coverage of his crowd size at the inaugural and he unexpectedly announced a new executive order to help guarantee free speech on college campuses. The president also addressed his failed summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, defending himself against blistering criticism of his remarks that he takes Kim Jong-un at his word about the death of American college student Otto Warmbier. And I'm in such a horrible position because in one way I have to negotiate, in the other way I love Mr. and Mrs. Warmbier, and I love Otto. And it's a very, very delicate balance. Joining us now, President Trump's National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Glad to be with you. So it seems as though President Trump doesn't have anything new to show for the summit. Kim Jong-un got a second face-to-face meeting with the American president, building his cloud on an international stage. Now we're told South Korea and the U.S. are scaling back uh, major joint military exercises. Did this summit end up helping North Korea more than the United States? No, I think it was unquestionably a success for the United States because the president protected, defended American interests. You know, the possibility was there for North Korea to make a big deal with us, to do complete denuclearization in exchange for the potential for a very bright economic future. The president wanted to make that big deal. He pushed very hard for it. The North Koreans were not willing to walk through through the door that he opened for them. Uh, So now we'll see what happens. But uh, in in terms of the outcome, uh, the president has conducted this diplomacy different from prior administrations. All three prior administrations that addressed this question failed. So he's trying a different route. Kim Jong-un himself said at the the last meeting, you know, we're going to go through many stations before we reach agreement. This is just one more station. But there's no 
nothing new on the table. There's nothing new that has been achieved, right? Except for now there's these major joint military exercises with South Korea, which is what the North, Korea wa- North Koreans want. That's achieved for them. What, what, is, what did the U.S. get? You know, I don't, I don't see that there's any real difference between, uh, on the exercise point, between what the president decided in Singapore now. It's not like some new decision has been made. The president made his decision on the exercises uh, back in the summer of last year, and, and those continue. I think what the United States gets from this is we show again the potential for the opening of North Korea if they're prepared to denuclearize. Uh, We'll let the North Koreans evaluate uh, what happened. We're going to take a look at ways of making sure that our maximum pressure campaign of economic sanctions continues because, after all, it's the sanctions that brought North Korea to the table in the first place. Well, nobody begrudges the president for trying something new. Nobody begrudges the president for trying... I I think some do begrudge him that. Nobody reasonable uh, uh, begrudges the president for trying something new or for trying to achieve peace. But nothing came of the summit other than further demonstrations that the United States wants peace, wants denuclearization. Would you recommend a third summit uh, without a tangible, uh, deliverable, as it's called, something on the table that the United States knows will be achieved? Well, you're, you're speaking in the, in the terms of conventional diplomacy that, my goodness, there's no deal. How horrible. Uh, I would say it the other way. If, if you can't get a good deal, and the president offered North Korea the best deal it could possibly get, no deal is better than a bad deal. So the, the president's decided to shake things up in North Korean diplomacy, given the failure of the last three administrations to, to achieve the denuclearization of North Korea. Uh, he obviously thinks it's, it's worth trying. We'll see now what comes next. Well, I agree, obviously, that a bad deal is worse than no deal. Not, not everybody agrees with that proposition, by but the way. But the North Koreans got something out of this. They got a big international propaganda victory, and I don't see any, anything that the United States achieved. And I wonder, without a concrete demonstration that something would be able to be achieved... Would you recommend to the president a third summit? Look, the the president simply doesn't uh, agree with the idea that Kim gets something out of these meetings. Others disagree with that. That's not the president's view. Now, would he want a third summit? He said uh, in his press conference in Hanoi, none has been scheduled. Uh, would he want another one without some manifestation the North was going to move? Uh, that, that'll, that'll remain to be seen. The, the key decision maker is Kim Jong-un. He's heard it directly from the president. The big deal that he could accept, he could walk through that open door. We'll wait and see what his decision is. I want to play what President Trump said about Kim Jong-un and the brutal mistreatment uh, of the American college student Otto Warmbier, who was arrested in North Korea and returned to the United States in a coma, and he subsequently uh, died. Take a listen. I don't believe that he would have allowed that to happen. He tells me that he didn't know about it, and I will take him at his word. He's going to take Kim Jong-un at his word that he didn't know about it. The Warm Beer family put out a statement. They disagree. They say Kim Jong-un is responsible. Are they wrong? Look, the president made it very clear he considers what happened to Otto Warm Beer uh, an act of brutality that's completely unacceptable to the American side. I've heard him... Uh, before uh, the summit itself, before the press conference, uh, talk about how deeply he cared about Otto Warmbier and his family. Uh, The fact is, the best thing North Korea could do right now would be to give us a full accounting of what happened uh, and who was responsible for it. Do you take Kim Jong-un at his word? The president takes him at his word. No, I know he does, but what about you? My opinion doesn't matter. Uh, my opinion is that You're I'm the national, national security advisor of the president. Right. Your not, opinion matters quite a bit. I am not the national security decision maker. That's his view. Well, 
We saw Otto Warm Beer in North Korean custody after his arrest at a press conference, February 29th, uh, 2016. There he is. He was alert. He was talking. He was physically okay. So whatever happened to Otto Warm Beer clearly happened after he entered North Korean custody, after Kim Jong-un knew that he was in North Korean custody. Do you believe that somebody in the prison system in North Korea just went rogue and did something to Otto Warm Beer? Or do your years of knowing North Korea and knowing the politics there tell you that whatever happened to Otto Warm Beer, Kim Jong-un had to have known about it because that's how that country's run? Listen, nothing that happens in North Korea surprises me. But I do think what uh, North Korea would benefit from most uh, is a full description of what happened, a full accounting. I don't know one expert in North Korea who thinks that anything could have happened to Otto Warmbier without Kim Jong-un knowing about it ahead of time. Do you disagree? Good for them. But what about you? You're in North Korea. Uh, you, you know, you, people in the media seem to have the impression that uh, administration officials kind of comment from the distance, as if I were a Fox News contributor, as I used to be. You used to be. I, I don't do that anymore. I give my advice to the president. I give my opinions to the president. He makes up his own mind. That's why he's president. So there is this context of President Trump taking the word of Kim Jong-un. In the past, uh, in Helsinki, he said he believed Vladimir Putin's denials of election interference uh, over that of U.S. intelligence agencies. He has cited Crown Prince MBS's denials of his involvement in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who lived in the United States. Why does the president say publicly that he's willing to side with dictators over Americans. He's not saying he's siding with dictators he over Americans. He, had, he has expressed his opinion about what they've said on these uh, various uh, points. And let's, let's just take Khashoggi as another example. Uh, as with what I just said on North Korea, the administration position expressed by the president and every other official who's addressed it is we want a full accounting from the Saudis. So I think that's entirely consistent with, uh, with finding out, getting to the bottom of what happened. I want to uh, turn to another subject. The New York Times reported this week that President Trump overruled career intelligence officials in order to give his son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner a top security clearance. President Trump said just last month he didn't get involved. Is the president telling the American people the truth? Look, I have no idea what the, what the story is on the security clearances involved there, so, uh, so you'll, have to, you'll have to ask the president. He's given his opinion on it. Um, let's turn to some other events around the world. The United States has been negotiating with the Taliban in Afghanistan, as you know, trying to broker a peace agreement uh, that would ultimately perhaps end up with the withdrawal of all 14,000 U.S. troops and service members who are there. Take a listen to the third-ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. I think you know her, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, in my interview with her last month. The Taliban will not uh, live up to any negotiated deal that we set with them. The notion that we're somehow going to have a negotiated deal um, with the Taliban, that we can take their word that they won't allow al-Qaeda uh, to have safe havens again, uh, is, is uh, in, in my view, irresponsible. Why can the Taliban be trusted to hold up their end of any sort of negotiation? Well, I, I don't trust them just as a matter of faith. Uh, they'll uphold it if it's in their interest to uphold it. What uh, the president has decided is that it's going to be important uh, to try and keep a counterterrorism presence in Afghanistan. That's a central part of these discussions. I can tell you that 
uh, senior national security officials have been discussing this issue and how to try and bring it about, how to support the diplomacy but follow our counterterrorism objectives uh, continuously. We'll be doing some more of it this week. It's a very important point. Uh, we're putting a lot of uh, energy in it. But there's no blind trust in the Taliban in this administration, that's for sure. Let's turn to another terrorist group. Uh, on Thursday, President Trump declared victory over ISIS in Syria saying, quote, we just took over 100% of the land controlled by ISIS there. Yesterday, there was still heavy fighting there. As you know, the president backtracked a bit to say 100% of ISIS land would be taken by today. Has that happened yet? Has ISIS been defeated in 100% of the land in Syria? I don't know, but let's be clear. We're talking about an area roughly the size of Central Park in New York. Uh, and there, the, the uh, negotiations have been underway to let some non-combatants out. Some of the ISIS fighters uh, want to visit Allah. That's, that's what they uh, are there to do. Uh, and I think the Syrian opposition is about to accommodate them. But we're talking about an insignificant piece of real estate here, and it will happen very, very soon. Let's turn to South America. You tweeted on Friday about Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro, quote, those who continue to support a dictator that violates human rights and steals from the starving should not be allowed to walk around with impunity, unquote. Just as a matter of course, and this didn't start with the Trump administration, the United States supports any number of dictators who violate human rights, including the leaders of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Should those who support those dictators not be allowed to walk around with impunity? You know, I've, I've put out roughly 150 tweets on Venezuela. This is a new experiment in public diplomacy. Uh, the fact is that we are trying to rally support uh, for the peaceful transition of power from Maduro to Juan Guaido, whom we recognize as president. Uh, and I think uh, since most of my tweets also come out in Spanish because we want to reach the Latin American audience in particular, that a lot of people, especially on the political left, in the hemisphere and around the world, now understand that the failed experiment of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro needs to end. So I'd like to see as broad a coalition as we can put together to replace Maduro, to replace the whole corrupt regime. That's what we're trying to do. Well, certainly Maduro is nobody that I would defend in any way. But well, that's good to hear. But do you, do you not see that uh, the United States support for other brutal dictators around the world undermines the the credibility of the argument you're making? No, I don't think it does. I think it's separate. And I think, look, in this administration, uh, we're not afraid to use the phrase Monroe Doctrine. This, this is a country in our hemisphere. It's been the objective of American presidents going back to Ronald Reagan to have a completely democratic hemisphere. I uh, mentioned back in, uh, at the end of last year that uh, we're looking very much at the troika of tyranny, including Cuba and Nicaragua, as well as Maduro. Part of the problem in Venezuela is the heavy Cuban presence, 20 to 25,000 Cuban security officials by reports that have been in the public. This is the, the sort of thing that, uh, that we find unacceptable, and that's why we're pursuing these policies. I only have a few more seconds, but I want to ask you about Venezuela. Republican Senator Marco Rubio sponsoring legislation to offer TPS status, temporary protected status, to Venezuelans in the U.S. who are at risk of being deported back to the political turmoil and worse uh, in Venezuela. Would you support that? Well, we'll have to take a look at that. Our uh, objective is to have Juan Guaido become uh, the interim president so we can get new presidential elections. And if that were to happen, uh, we wouldn't need to grant TPS status. So I'd rather focus on uh, getting the transformation in Venezuela and getting them back on the road to uh, stability. I do want to ask you, uh, the New York Times just reported that a dual American and Saudi citizen, uh, Walid uh, Fitaihi, told a friend he was uh, in Saudi Arabia and uh, 
and, and not treated well after being arrested in, two, in November 2017. The Saudis called it a crackdown on corruption. He's in prison now with no uh, charges, no trial. What do you know about this? What is the U.S. trying to do to secure uh, his release? Well, as of this moment, uh, uh, my understanding is we have had what's called consular access, meaning American diplomats in Saudi Arabia have visited with him. Uh, beyond that, we don't really have any additional information at this point. Ambassador Bolton, thanks so much for joining us. Glad we appreciate to be with it. you. The president's criticism of the Russia probe this weekend comes after an extraordinary public betrayal by his former fixer and lawyer, Michael Cohen. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man. And he is a cheat. Democratic lawmakers are gearing up to launch even more investigations into the presidency. The latest, the House Oversight Committee is demanding information from the White House on the security clearances of top officials, including and especially the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner. The New York Times reporting the president overruled concerns from career intelligence officials to grant Kushner a top security clearance. Joining me now to talk about this and much more, a Democrat from Virginia and the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Mark Warner. Senator, good to see you. Thanks for joining good to us. see you, Jake. So let's start with Jared Kushner's security clearance. Is this a, a threat to national security? Well, the president does have a right to give anyone a security clearance. But what I think is inappropriate is these security clearances should be given after the review of the national security Officials, the fact that he, in effect, chooses to give a family member overriding the recommendations of the community bothers me a great deal. As we saw earlier, uh, there was also efforts by the president to try to take away security clearances. I believe it was John Brennan when someone, when he expressed some of his views. Security clearances have not normally been used as political footballs, but again, this is in so many other areas the president is not adhering to traditional procedures. The former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, according to The Times, wrote a contemporaneous memo outlining how the president demanded that he approve the security clearances against the advice of both the White House Counsel's Office and national security officials. Should Kelly be called to Congress to testify? Well, I think there needs to be further explanation. I mean, again, you have Mr. Kushner, who's at least tangentially been touched by a, a number of the investigations uh, he's clearly got a very strong relationship with the leadership in Saudi Arabia. And the whole idea that the president arbitrarily picks which family members to get security clearances, uh, overriding the advice of the intelligence community. But we shouldn't be surprised at that. This president has consistently been willing to override the advice of the intelligence community. And as you've seen from some of your earlier guests, instead, this president seems to choose the word of dictators over the words of our intelligence community, whether it was in the death of Otto Wambier, whether it was in the question of believing Vladimir Putin about Russia's non-intervention intervention in our 2016 elections, whether it's believing the leadership of Saudi Arabia right. about the death of Khashoggi. There is a pattern here that seems to be constantly repeated that I think all of us, regardless of party, should be very concerned about. Let's turn to Michael Cohen. Uh, take a listen to this one key line from his public uh, testimony on Wednesday. Questions have been raised about whether I know of direct evidence that Mr. Trump or his campaign colluded with Russia. I do not. That potentially seems like a big blow to those who are investigating and even hoping to find evidence uh, of conspiracy between the Trump team uh, and the Russian government. Well, Jake, there's lots of evidence. The question is, what kind of 
conclusion we're going to reach. I mean, the three pieces of evidence that came out of Cohen's testimony, and let me be first to acknowledge Mr. Cohen uh, doesn't have a great record of veracity. As a matter of fact, he is going to jail partially because of the lies he made to the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, although I would also argue the president doesn't have a very good record on telling the truth as well. But the three facts that I thought were new to the investigation, one, the fact that, uh, and I believe there's extra evidence on this, that Donald Trump and Michael Cohen misled the American public for months about the Trump Tower, about Moscow. the whole notion of trying to continue to uh, get a Trump Tower project going in Moscow. And again, I point out the fact Donald Trump had been trying to build a project in Moscow for over a decade. Suddenly he becomes a candidate for president and he's got a very lucrative deal on the table. I want to find out why. The second is uh, the, the evidence that Mr. Cohen put out that he received was in the presence of Donald Trump when Roger Stone called, indicated that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange from WikiLeaks, indicating that WikiLeaks was about to drop a bunch of very damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Is there any evidence of that other than Michael Cohen's testimony? The timing seems to be correct, but again, that's why we've got to dig in deeper. But there would be phone records. Well, there are phone records, and clearly Mr. Cohen is in the process of turning over to our committee and others a whole series of additional information. There are phone and, records? You know well, a phone record between I'm Assange sure. and the president? What I do know that... I mean, Assange and Stone What and I president. do know is that Mr. Cohen is supposed to be turning over additional records that we've been looking for for mm-hmm. some time. And I'll, that's a fair question to ask once we get a chance to look at those, look at those records. And then mm-hmm. finally, uh, we have this whole question uh, where, it, again, again, Mr. Cohen put out the fact that he believes that Mr. Cohen... Or Mr. Trump knew about the meeting in Trump Tower that included Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, the campaign manager, Paul Manafort, uh, clearly a meeting that was not about Russian adoptions, but was about the idea of turning over dirt uh, on Hillary Clinton. You add that on top of Paul Manafort yeah. giving campaign materials. So anyone that says there's no evidence of collaboration, there's plenty of evidence. The question is, what kind of full conclusion do we reach? And I'm going to reserve my judgment on that conclusion until we finish our investigation. Well, when you say anyone who says there's no evidence, I mean, the chairman of the committee that you're vice chairman of, Senator Richard Byrd, of a Republican of North Carolina, he says there's no direct evidence. And it sounds like he wants to put together and put out a bipartisan report, Democrats and Republicans signing on to it, uh, detailing what evidence there is. But also his opinion is there's no direct evidence. Well, you, it, you seem to be suggesting there's... Uh, circumstantial evidence. I think He's saying there's there no direct evidence. Could you sign off on that report, a bipartisan report? I'm going to withdraw my, withhold my judgment. We still have not seen many of the major figures, candidly, because they've all been involved with the Mueller investigation, and it's important that the criminal process proceeds first. But we, as the Senate bipartisan uh, counterintelligence investigation, need to see these people. I'll reach my final conclusion once we see these people. But the notion that Who are you talking about? Which people? The notion that there's no evidence is just factually wrong. Just in the public domain, there are literally reams and reams of evidence of Russian outreach to Trump officials and clear interest from Trump officials, including the president's own son, welcoming sure. the opportunity to get dr- dirt on Hillary Clinton. Circumstantial evidence as opposed to direct evidence is what you well, and think, Burr go I back and what, forth on that. I think what, one of the things, and I don't claim to be a, a legal expert by any means, uh, but 
folks who I've talked to have been in the prosecutorial business have said, you know, when you're looking at conspiracies, it is almost always based upon a, a pattern of circumstantial evidence. So you tweeted this week that not only the full Mueller report, but all of the investigation's records should be handed over to Congress. The Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein cautioned about uh, having such complete transparency from the government more broadly this week. He said, quote, if we aren't prepared to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt in court, then we have no business making allegations against American citizens. You well, disagree with him? Well, what I say is there is precedence been set within the last few years when Republican members of the House demanded all the underlying documents about the non-indictment of Hillary Clinton. Now, the Justice Department and the FBI turned over all those documents. That precedence has now been set. Depending on what Mueller finds, I believe the Congress deserves to look at all the underlying uh, materials as well. And one of the things that I'm hoping and that I'm going to be calling upon is when Mr. Mueller finishes report, his report and when he turns it over to Mr. Barr, I think it's incumbent upon the attorney general to brief con- congressional leaders, at least the gang of eight, and that is appropriate for our role in terms of what his plan is on how he's going to distribute this, uh, this information. Matter of fact, I was actually pleased when Devin Nunes, the former chair of the House uh, Intelligence Committee, put out just yesterday or the day before that he thought all of this underlying information ought to be made public. I think the American public deserves to know, not only because we need to know what Trump and his organization knew Mm -hmm. or didn't know in terms of collaboration and collusion, but also we need to make sure we have as much evidence out there as possible on how we prevent Russia or others from doing this again in the future. Senator, very quickly before you go, uh, your home state, uh, the governor, Ralph Northam, uh, who had the blackface incident, the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, accused by two women uh, of sexual assault. Uh, They're both still in office, even though you've called for both of them uh, to step down. Uh, How embarrassing is that for you as a Virginia Democrat? Listen, as somebody who spent 20 years trying to build a brand about Virginia Democrats, and candidly, Virginia, where we most recently uh, won the award of the Amazon headquarters, it's been very challenging. But if the governor and lieutenant governor are going to continue, I think the lieutenant governor needs, there needs to be a due process where the accusers get a chance to make their case, where the lieutenant governor gets to make his defense. And one of the things, if the governor is going to continue to stay, uh, what he needs to do is get out and start to try to re-earn the trust of Virginians. When I called for his resignation along with uh, my friend Tim Kaine, we said the governor had lost the faith of the people of Virginia. He has a right to try to regain that faith, but I believe that will involve him getting out and making that case directly to Virginians. But just yes or no, you still think they should both step down? Listen, I think that we've made our, we made our call weeks ago both of these gentlemen, if they're going to stay, there needs to be a process in place so they can go about trying to re-earn the faith of Virginians. Senator Mark Warner, thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Will the president's own party support his emergency declaration on the wall? We'll talk to two Republican lawmakers who see it completely differently. Next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. House Democrats are upping the pressure on President Trump, but in the coming days, President Trump may face a challenge to his authority from an unexpected source, Senate Republicans, who could force him to grab his veto pen over their concerns about his executive authority 
on the border wall. Joining me now, Republican from Louisiana, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator John Kennedy. Senator, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. So Michael Cohen uh, testified under oath before the House Oversight Committee that the president directed him to commit a campaign finance violation uh, and cut him reimbursement checks while he was president. You're a lawyer. You sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Do you think uh, that if what Cohen is saying was true and he did have that check as evidence, do you think that was illegal, unethical, neither, both? Jake, I don't know. I, I, uh, I didn't listen to the testimony. I was in committee uh, over in the Senate, but I read excerpts. Mr. Cohen has accused the president of uh, violating our banking laws, of violating our campaign finance laws. I feel pretty confident that he's uh, given all that information to Mr. Mueller. We'll see what Mr. Mueller has to say. I think any fair-minded person would have to question uh, Mr. Cohen's checkered past. Um, he's an angry man. He's bitter. That's, that much is clear. Um, uh, as I said the other day, I'm not saying he's on the pipe crazy, but he's a little unbalanced. Um, but look, I don't know who's telling the truth and who isn't. But Mr. Mueller, I'm sure, will get to the bottom of it. My personal opinion about Mr. Cohen is that he has an axe to grind. And I think most Americans will, will understand his checkered past. Senate, uh, the Southern uh, District of New York, the U.S. attorney there, uh, mm-hmm. says Cohen, uh, who's going to jail for election fraud and other charges, um, uh, Cohen, quote, acted with the intent to influence the 2016 presidential election at the direction of President Trump himself right. in uh, these hush money payments. That's right. the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Um, that's a crime. He's going to jail for it. But what about the president's role in it, as asserted by the U.S. attorney? Well, once again, if it's true, if it's true. Well, the U.S. I mean, attorney says it's true. Well, if it's true, then he'll bring an indictment. And, Against uh, the president? Uh, uh, I don't know. But he'll, if it's true, he'll prosecute it if he thinks he can win. But I'll tell you this. I'll bet if anybody prosecutes any of the crimes that uh, Mr. Cohen alleged, they won't rely solely on Mr. Cohen's testimony. That's I mean, um, to put it in commonsensical terms, I wouldn't take Mr. Cohen's check, and I'll bet you wouldn't either. I want to ask you about another item from Cohen's hearing. Take a listen to this exchange between Cohen and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Should Congress investigate whether or not President Trump committed insurance fraud? Well, I think the House is going to investigate regardless of what, whether we should or we shouldn't. Um, we, we both understand, I think, that there's a political tinge to all of this. There's going to be two years of this. I hope we get something done besides investigations aimed at impacting the next election. You know, we, we've got two years left. We can, uh, we can ride the anger or we can try to solve some problems around here. I hope we do the latter. Uh, you're on the record saying you're going to vote to support the president's declaration of yes. a national emergency on the southern border. Not all of your Republican colleagues are on board. Uh, Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander took to the Senate floor to oppose uh, the emergency this week. He said, quote, there is no limit to the imagination of what the next left wing president could do to harm our country with this precedent. Do you not have Similar concerns about the precedent this might set? Well, here's why I find that a, a, a specious argument. Um, the assumption is that a future president who happened to be a Democrat would not be smart enough or not have a staff smart enough to understand that there is a National Emergencies Act statute. And there are other statutes, I think uh, over 100 of them, that give the president this authority. 
Look, he's not using any authority that Congress hasn't already given him. Using, using this authority is not and was not my preferred choice. But uh, unlike some of my colleagues, I, I don't think that um, the president doing this is going to end Western order. The sun will come up the next morning. Um, I do think he is probably rethinking the situation. As I understand it, he has the ability without resorting to a national emergency. He can put together four and a half, maybe five billion dollars. Uh, I've been asked repeatedly, what's the vote going to be in the Senate? I don't know, but I'll tell you this right now. I don't think uh, the president has the votes on a straight up vote to, uh, to, to sustain his position. Now, if the Senate says, uh, Mr. President, you don't have the authority as the House did, I expect uh, the president to veto it and we'll be right back to where we are now. Congressman Justin Amash, the only uh, Republican in the House co-sponsoring legislation to terminate uh, the emergency. He's coming up next. Right. He says President Trump is, quote, attempting, attempting to circumvent our constitutional system. Now, yes, the National Emergency Act exists, but mm -hmm. it has never been used before, as you know, to uh, get funds for something that Congress will right. not allocate funds right. for. Do you not have any concerns on constitutional? Well, again, it wasn't my preferred choice. I would have preferred to uh, have Congress do its job. Now, not all my colleagues agree with me, but I, I do believe that we, uh, we have a problem at the border, that we have a crisis at the border. We have had, in my judgment, a 15-year bipartisan refusal here in Washington, D.C., by both big government Republicans and Rich Carlton Democrats to refuse to enforce America's immigration laws. Uh, Trump's enforcing them. Now, you may like that or dislike it, but he's enforcing them. Some of my colleagues don't agree with him. To them, the border is kind of a nuisance. You're talking about Republican colleagues, too? I'm talking about Democratic colleagues. Okay. So to them, the border is a nuisance. To some of my Democratic friends, um, there's no, they make no distinction between legal and illegal immigration. And if you disagree with them, you're a racist. I believe that legal immigration makes our country stronger. I believe that illegal immigration undermines legal immigration. I believe that illegal immigration is illegal. I mean, duh. Right. And one way, one way to combat it, not the only way, is a border wall. Uh, I don't see how any fair-minded person can conclude, particularly if he or she has border uh, security experience, that you can secure 1,900 miles of real estate without a wall or a barrier. You can't. And every other country that, that has used one, Israel, for example, with its 400-mile border wall with the West Bank, mm -hmm. um, they found success with it. Now, you can debate whether it's ethical or moral or the right thing to do, but that's a different debate, Jake, from, from the debate of whether it's effective. It's very effective. All right, well, let's hear the other side of it. Senator John Kennedy, we appreciate your time and Thanks, appreciate man. your being here this morning. Uh, let's go to that Republican lawmaker who says it's not his job to support the president 100%. Republican Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan, also a member of the House Oversight Committee. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. You just heard Senator Kennedy explain why he thinks Republicans should support the president's national emergency. You were only one of 13 of the nearly 200 Republicans in the House who opposed the emergency. What's your response? Well, thanks, Jake, for having me on. Uh, we have a system of separation of powers under our Constitution. The legislative branch, Congress, handles legislative powers. And this is something that we've had uh, going through Congress for the past several years. There's been discussions about a border wall or fencing. We've passed appropriations bills. The president has signed the bills. He hasn't vetoed the bills. So if he wanted to 
uh, say that there was a crisis. He could have vetoed the legislation. He's never vetoed appropriations legislation. And now he wants to declare an emergency to do something that Congress has already debated and discussed. You've already heard uh, Senator Kennedy say this, and President Trump has said this many times, that there is a, quote, national security crisis on the border. Is that wrong? I think there's a, a fair debate that there are uh, big problems on the border. Some people would call it a crisis, uh, but that has to go through Congress. So we have a legislative branch, Congress, that handles these issues, and the president doesn't get to decide that he can override Congress simply because Congress doesn't do what he wants. I know that there are a lot of people in the country who agree with the president, and that's why we have Congress, so we can debate these issues. And if there were an emergency in the, in the sense that the president is describing, there would be a lot more consensus. When a house is on fire, nobody's debating whether uh, they should go in to save people or whether they should put out the fire. Everyone understands that's an emergency. The fact that there's a debate going on here and there's not consensus indicates it's not an emergency in the sense that the president is describing, and he can't just go around Congress. You tweeted this week, quote, if you think my job is to support the president 100%, then you don't understand what it means to be a representative in Congress. My job is to support the Constitution 100%, unquote. Uh, do you think that Republicans who are supporting this national emergency are abdicating their responsibilities to the Constitution? I think so, yes. I don't think that they're all intending to do that. I think many of them uh, are making arguments. They're trying to make legal arguments. They say, well, Congress has passed legislation giving the president this power. So I don't think that they're thinking to themselves, oh, I just want the president to violate the Constitution. But I think the president is violating our constitutional system. And I don't think Congress can grant legislative powers to the president by statute. You can't just pass a statute that says the president now has appropriations power and, uh, and bypass Congress. Uh, I don't think that's, that's allowed under our constitutional system. And the best check on the president's action is Congress. It's not the courts. Uh, our system is not designed so that the courts are going to uh, resolve these disputes all the time between the legislative branch and the executive branch. We have to protect our own power, and that's what I'm doing, and I'm hopeful many Republican senators will agree. Well, let's turn to oversight, because it was part of the House Oversight Committee hearings to, to hear from Michael Cohen this week. We heard a lot of your fellow Republicans attacking Cohen over his credibility, uh, which is certainly uh, ripe for attack. But you seem to spend your time in the hearing uh, trying to elicit information, trying to get to the core of Michael Cohen's motivations. Uh, let's run a quick excerpt. You feel you're, you're following a different set of principles now than you followed throughout your life. I, I do, and I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying very hard. I thank you for your questions. Some of the other ones are really make it difficult to try to you know, show some redemption. Um, but you know, I, am, I am trying. Do you believe him? As I said at the hearing, I'm not sure we should believe him. Uh, he's had a very checkered past. Uh, I do think that he deserves the opportunity to be believed. So that's why I asked those questions. I wanted to hear from him. I wanted to give him a chance to uh, provide answers to more open-ended questions rather than conducting a hearing where we're just yelling at him um, or trying to grandstand or make political statements during the hearing. I, I think the purpose of a, an oversight hearing is to gather information for investigative purposes, and that's what I was trying to do. 
You also asked him during his testimony, quote, what is the truth that you know President Trump fears the most? Uh, it seemed to stump him. Uh, it was an interesting question. Why did you ask that? Well, again, I wanted to give him the opportunity to answer something in a more open-ended way. And I felt like giving a question like that would give him the opportunity to, to speak freely and to give us something that was perhaps new, something that would be helpful to us as we conduct this investigation. And um, it, it did stump him. I was surprised by that, actually, because I figured with all of his history with the president, he would have something to say. It's possible that there is something he wants to say, but feels uh, restricted because of the ongoing investigation in the courts. Did you have a suspicion as to what it might be? I don't know, but uh, I just wanted to give him that opportunity okay. and, and uh, see what happens. You reportedly told libertarians in an event in January that the ideal libertarian presidential candidate needs to be able to bring Democrats and Republicans together and not just appeal to diehard libertarians. Uh, you notably did not endorse President Trump in 2016. Uh, would you be willing to run for the White House uh, as the libertarian nominee in 2020? Well, I'd never rule anything out. Uh, that's not on my radar right now. But uh, I think that it is important that we have someone in there who is presenting a vision for America that is different from what these two parties are presenting. Uh, right now, we have uh, a wild amount of partisan rhetoric on both sides. And uh, Congress is totally broken. We can't debate things in a clear way anymore. Everything has become, do you like uh, President Trump or do you not like President Trump? And I think that we need to return to basic American principles, talk about what we have in common as a people, because I believe we have a lot in common as Americans, and uh, try to move forward together rather than uh, fighting each other all the time. Sounds like a platform. Congressman Justin Amash, uh, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jake. Senator Bernie Sanders says he's not interested in taking any advice from Hillary Clinton for his 2020 campaign, so that might make things a little awkward while they're together today. That's next. Stay with us. As we launch this campaign for president, you deserve to know where I came from. My experience as a child living in a family that struggled economically, powerfully influenced my life and my values. I know where I came from. Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, but that Brooklyn is thick in his voice. And of course, it was on display yesterday as he announced his presidential campaign. Our panel is here with us. Uh, Senator, I mean, Governor, let me start with you. Um, there's obviously a, a, a very um, conscious effort to show more of a, the story of Bernie Sanders oh, yeah. here and who he is and not just the policies he, he stands for. Was that what was lacking in 2016? Is it working so far? Well, I certainly think it was a smart move yesterday because I think in this age of uh, crave, craving for authenticity, people showing where they came from, especially if they've overcome something, if there's a challenge and then they link their policies to it, it makes perfect sense. So I think it was a really smart move. You know, otherwise, the, you, know, you don't want to just hear the same old, same old policies again. You have to understand where somebody, what drives somebody. And, and uh, he's, he's also emphasizing his commitment to the civil rights movement way back in the 60s when he was at the University of Chicago. He was criticized uh, last time for not connecting effectively uh, with the African-American community 
Uh, is this part of what he needs to do to get the nomination? I know you're not necessarily rooting yeah, for I mean, him I, to get the nomination. I think, I think that Bernie Sanders has a long way to go, and I, I, there's a certain part of me that believes that ship has already sailed. I mean, it's not the fact that Bernie Sanders marched with Dr. King in the 60s. I think that was one of the first things that he said. The question was, where have you been and what have you done <laughs> since then? What, where, has been, where has your activism been since the 60s? And show me the legislation you've done as a mayor of Burlington or why you've been in the United States House or the United States Senate to positively affect change in the African-American community. And he wasn't able to articulate that answer. A lot of the success Bernie Sanders had uh, was the fact that he was the anti-Hillary Clinton at the time. And he was a home for people who had a problem with Hillary Clinton. Now the field is vast. There are other people in this quote-unquote progressive lane. And I think that Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto, Biden, um, and Sherrod Brown and a few others are, are, are really out there running magnificent campaigns. And Bernie Sanders' voice, which has had a huge impact on our policies is one that's going to be loud and resonates. You know, every time I see Bernie Sanders and the traction that he's getting, I just think of him as the Ron Paul of the left. He is a protest candidate, a septuagenarian who speaks fondly of revolution and has traditionally operated outside the party structures. That said, he's doing pretty well in the polls. He's ahead. Yeah. And in some Democrats in have a right. huge opportunity to pick up skeptical Republicans. But if they latch <clears> on to <throat> someone who self-identifies as a socialist, that is going to drive Republicans back into the arms of Trump, especially when the platform has, you know, a $82 trillion tag on the Green New Deal, $32 trillion for Medicare for all. I mean, these are ideas that are popular okay. with a certain segment of well, his so, base, uh, but not. not well, just, I, know, I know you want to bash socialism, but before no, no, we- not, not bashing socialism, I'm just going to say like to, to that point. Right. Yeah. Um, if you look at the 40 members of the House that were elected, Democrats that were elected in the House. 33 of those members are new Dems, centrist new Dems. Mm. So you have AOC, Bernie, all these progressives in the party pulling the party to the left pretty strongly. And then you have these 40 people who are elected, 33 of them, new Dems centrist. And you see this past week, there's a, there's a tug of war in the, in the House between AOC. I'm going to put you on the list if you don't vote for these progressive things. We're going to bash it. There's going to be a real battle in the Democratic Party for where the soul is of the Let's party. Let's just say that 284 people identify as Democrats or caucus with the Democrats in Congress. 282 <laughs> identify as Democratic Socialists. Uh, well, but, that's, but, 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 but all the candidates, interestingly, but interestingly, interestingly, all the candidates are running. You, yeah. what I'm okay. telling you. Don't need to argue with me. Because they are, I think that, you know, a lot of people fail to, I mean, they, they just fail to remember as, we, as Republicans try to cause this divide that Hillary Clinton did win by 4 million votes. This was not a close right, race. Right. Three, but okay. But that's not how the so, game's but, played. That's but, how the but, game's played, but, though. But, but, right. just, but one of the points that, we, that you were bringing up when we talk about policy is, yes, Bernie and AOC and a lot of my progressive colleagues, those people on the left, are talking about these grand ideas. But the yeah, party is, that's okay to talk about how we're going to ensure people and how we're going to fix climate change. Yeah. Nothing's so wrong with that. Bernie Sanders, uh, I believe, at the next presidential election will be, I believe, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 77 years old or thereabouts. There's a brand new NBC Wall Street Journal poll out this morning. Uh, among all voters, how comfortable you are are you with a candidate being over 75 years old? 37% say that they are enthusiastic or comfortable. 62% of those polled say they, are, they have reservations about a candidate that old uh, or very uncomfortable. Now, only two candidates that I know of uh, fit the category of will be over 75 at the time of the next presidential election. Trump's Bernie's, pretty close. He's close, but he's not there. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Now, I recognize that there, there's, there's an ageist quality to all of this. But what do you Are you asking it? me for a reason? 
I'm asking you because <laughs> no, you're a, a former I'm governor to my right. <laughs> I'm totally kidding you. Yeah, I mean, I think Dave's that the old man at the table. If you asked, <laughs> if you asked people, if you asked people who are over 70 whether they're comfortable, my guess is they would be uncomfortable. So you have to look. 79, at, I'm told in my ear. 70. Bernie will be 79. Yeah, I mean election. that's you know that's getting up there. And so the question is, how are these individuals? How are they? Are they sharp? I was talking with somebody who's close to the Biden team this week because if he does jump in. I mean, I think he's got a huge amount to offer. And I He'll said, be 78. How, right. And I said, how is he doing? And they said, you will not, he, the guy is exercising. But, he's sharp. He's not slowing down. But that's how he motivates the base, right? But that's I want to run for office again. Yeah. So I'm not going <laughs> to dare say that we shouldn't have a, I'm not going to be ageist. I'm not going to walk yeah. down that path. I will say, though, that Bernie Sanders' biggest, I mean, not Bernie Sanders, excuse me, Joe Biden's biggest problems are not, are not his age. Big. Bernie Sanders, I mean, Joe, Joe, Biden, Biden. Joe Biden's biggest problem is what he's going to have to do one day is look into a camera and apologize to Anita Hill, and he's going to have to address the 94 crime bill. He has substantive policy issues that he's going to have to address. Being 78, 79 is yeah. not at the top of the list. So, so one other thing that happened with Joe Biden this week was really interesting. He, um, he called Mike Pence, the vice president, a decent guy. Kind of, <laughs> God kind forbid. Of, kind of just a throwaway line when he was talking about uh, the Munich conference. Uh, progressive activist Cynthia Nixon, who ran for governor, and lost in the primary to, to Governor Cuomo, tweeted, Joe Biden, you've just called America's most anti-LGBT elected leader a decent guy. Please consider how this falls on the ears of our community. She subsequently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Biden responded, you're right, Cynthia. I was making a point in a foreign policy context that under normal circumstances, a vice president wouldn't be given a silent reaction on the world stage. But there is nothing decent about being anti-LGBTQ rights, and that includes the vice president. And I just put a, a stake in the ground for graciousness I mean, Joe Biden wasn't saying that his policies were decent. He was saying that he was a decent human being. Joe Biden is a head of was a head of Obama on LGBT issues. So much to I Obama's just, chagrin. Yes. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, my point is that I, Joe Biden, who is a, just a good human being, let people be decent. It's, you it's, know, it's let a, people be gracious. You I don't, don't have to. I, I mean, I disagree with you on almost everything. I'd I, wait, you're still, a decent guy. My dad's you, a Republican. <laughs> and Your dad's a Republican. My dad is a Thanksgiving Republican. Thanksgiving is. And he is <laughs> such a decent guy. But Biden did cave and kind of say he is indecent. And this is the problem. When you say someone is indecent, you are disqualifying them from the conversation. You're saying... I wouldn't even talk to you about your position on gay marriage. And when the conversation stops, that's when we get so polarized. So but as Democrats, Democrats we have go to, down this route, I know we you are have to shutting do a better out job. all Mike Pence's I, voters. I agree with that. And, and I'm, I'm not, it's not necessarily about Mike Pence's voters or anything else, but it's about basic humanity. I mean, wait till people find out that I actually consider myself friends with Strom Thurmond's son. What? Both of them. I mean, I actually serve with Paul Thurmond. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's South Carolina politics. It's okay to say that people are decent human beings and wholeheartedly and disagree. disagree with their yeah. politics. I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. I, in fact, I like David and Amanda. And I would hope that the president <laughs> Sorry. I would hope the president would take that issue. Well, let me ask you just briefly, David, because the, the president um, yesterday said that there are members of Congress who hate America. I mean, uh, I that's, so, that's well, a, this, this is a red meat speech for the base at CPAC, right? This is a campaign event. But that was not, not a, a decent event. thing to say. No, it's not a decent event. I mean, there, I, I believe that, you know, everybody who serves in Congress, people who run for political office, love our country, regardless of, of your beliefs. they do. You don't do it because you hate America. You do it because you love America. Okay, that's four decent, decent people at this panel. Thank you so much. <laughs> and five. The host ain't, the host ain't bad. Right. Thank you. I wasn't going to include myself. But I appreciate it. There's one thing Michael Cohen's not turning his back on, a potential movie deal. And that's the subject of this week's State of the Cartoonian. Longtime Trump fixer Michael Cohen told Congress this week that he's not only considering a book offer, but a movie deal. 
He even joked about casting. If you want to tell me who you would like to play you, I'm more than happy to write the name down. <laughs> How might Michael Cohen see himself in such a film? Obviously, he thinks he's the hero. Is it a courtroom drama? Say, a few not-so-good men? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Or does he see himself as a charming rogue, using his quick wit to con unsuspecting victims? Catch me if you Cohen. Trump's former fixer will definitely need cash, so he might favor a summer blockbuster. Maybe a mild-mannered lawyer comes in contact with radioactive Trump and it turns him into a monster. Hulk smash! There were times during Cohen's testimony when it sounded almost as though he was describing a love affair gone bad, a la Fatal Attraction. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. I'm not going to be ignored. Or maybe an action picture, joining other former Trumpers on a cross-country flight to prison. Welcome on board, Cohen Air. They somehow managed to get every creep and freak in the universe onto this one plane. Three generations, two presidents, one powerful family. The Bush Years premieres tonight at 9 on CNN. Take a look. I would like to introduce you to my family. Fact is, I'd be nothing without them. Our four sons, our daughter, Daro, my own Barbara Bush. Well, I think it's hard to imagine any family that have been more significant to American politics. I can hear you. family going back generations believe in public service and helping their fellow men people refer to the bush family as a dynasty that's what it is and that's what it was i'm running for president of the united states there's no turning back and i intend to be the next president of the united states that's my boy the bush years tonight at nine on cnn Fareed Zakaria starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.